You're listening to the Promise Church's Message of the Week. This week, Pastor Aaron shares testimonies from his trip to Iraq and reminds us that the true evidence of our faith is shown through our obedience. We hope you enjoy this teaching. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. Uh, last week, I was gone in, in Iraq. Um, I learned that dumb Americans say Iraq. The proper way is Iraq. And um, we had a great trip. For those of you who uh, aren't aware, we, um, my wife and I partnered with uh, Pastor Chris Donald to put together a nonprofit at the beginning of this year and to um, work to take the gospel to places it had never been before. We really felt like God put on our hearts to say, hey, uh, I, I want you to, to uh, to send the best of the best to places where people are afraid to go and to see God do some miraculous things. And so through a series of relationships, um, we were able to get connected with uh, a guy by the name of David Popovici in Iraq and um, begin the process of developing and creating a strategy to begin to do uh, crusades in the country of Iraq, the first crusades ever done in the country, and we're going to be doing them in November. And uh, so this last week, we were able to go and to begin to lay some of the groundwork for those events and uh, to begin to meet with some of the pastors. We were able to meet with uh, four out of the seven pastors that are there in Baghdad. There's only seven Christian churches in all of Baghdad. In fact, in all of Iraq, there's 38 million people, uh, but there's only 3,000 Christians. So 38 million people, 3,000 Christians, to put that in perspective, if the entire Woodland School District is 12,000 people, that's as if one person in the entire 12,000 uh, person school district is a believer. So 3,000 out of 38 million, and uh, we went there and met with some of the pastors. We got six out of the seven pastors in Baghdad going to partner with us for the events in November and it was an amazing experience to be able to meet with these individuals to begin to plan and pray and intercede for what God's going to do. And I wanted to share just one story with you. Um, uh, three days into our stay in Baghdad, we were, uh, were working with an NGO, which is kind of our cover for being there, uh, so we can uh, give supplies to orphans and widows. And so we were getting prepared to go out the next day to go to some place and give away supplies to some orphans and widows. And while we were getting ready that evening, the guide who was going to be taking us there the following day sat us down and he said, guys, I just want, I want to prepare you and I want to ask you if you could not mention the cross tomorrow when you go. You can say whatever you want, but don't, don't mention the cross. And we're like, bro, we, if we don't mention the cross, we really can't preach the gospel. If you don't have the cross, you don't have the resurrection, you don't have salvation, you've got to mention the cross. And he's like, man, please just don't don't do it. We're like, man, we, we've, we've got to mention him. But you could tell he was nervous. And, and when the guy who's taking you there is nervous, you begin to get a little nervous, to get a little concerned about where you're about to go. So the next day he comes and he picks us up. And again, he's like, guys, please, just don't mention the cross. Don't, don't talk about it. Please, whatever you do, don't say anything bad about, bad about Muhammad. Just, just stay in your lane. Give the widows and orphans things. Just kiss them. Kiss some, kiss some guys, which is what you do when you're in Iraq. You just kiss guys all the time. I kiss more guys in a seven-day trip than I've done my entire life. It's a lot of kissing. It's a lot of kissing. We might need to start implementing that here, I'm thinking. <laughs> I feel the Lord is saying something right now. 
Now, so, so we, we are, we're on our trip now. When your guide is nervous, we're already feeling nervous. But then when we get closer to where we're going, David, he's been in Iraq for seven years. He's a church planner there. He begins to tell us, he's like, guys, this is, this is strange. We're getting into one of the most violent areas of Baghdad, which is exactly what you want to hear. And uh, as we get, as we come up to this building, we notice that the entire building is, is surrounded by black flags. And if you know anything about Iraq and black flags, it's generally an indication of ISIS and of some sort of sympathy to ISIS being there. So at that moment, Chris and I, we pee our pants. It's just, it's over. Thankfully, we purchased really good underwear that dries very quickly. We were prepared for moments like that, so, so we were good. But uh, we see a hundred or so Muslim women with all black garb walking into this building at that moment as well. Now we're really getting scared. We've got black flags, we've got black garb walking into the same building. We pull up the van, we get out, and as soon as we get out, four sheiks, which if you don't know who sheiks are, they're like tribal leaders. They've got generally hundreds or thousands of people underneath of them, and they're neighborhood or community leaders, and they're very powerful. So these four sheiks come and they meet us. And uh, we kiss, we do the thing, and then they begin to lead us in the building. It's at that moment that David leans over to us and he's like, guys, we're in a mosque right now. So we're about ready to walk into a mosque, which if you don't know what that is, it's a place of their religious practices. And we walk in and there's Islamic or Arabic writing all over the walls. There's pictures, it's this giant picture staring at us when we sit down of an old sheik wearing, uh, having a sword. It's perfect. It's just like a very welcoming picture with the sword staring right at you. So we sit down and they welcome us um, and they, they make the introductions and then it's time for us to go up and do our thing. Now before we went in, we thought, hey, before we preach the gospel, we should pray for the sick because if people can get healed, it's probably gonna give us a little bit uh, more sympathetic audience if some people got healed before we preach the gospel. So we go up there, we call some words of knowledge, we begin to pray for the sick. All of a sudden a lady falls over, begins to manifest. People are in the back kind of making noise and later we found out that people were literally feeling like they were on fire. God's presence began to fill the room and many, many people, about 50 people got saved in a moment. It was powerful. So, so they get saved and we're starting to feel pretty good about ourselves. We're like, okay, this is gonna be good. So Chris and I, we go sit down so David and the translator can preach because there's some unique differences between the uh, Islamic religion and Christianity, there's a lot of similarities. And so if you just try to go up and say a bunch of things like, oh, Jesus is real, they're gonna be like, we know Jesus is real, he's a prophet, he's a healer, we pray to Jesus when we're sick. They're very used to a lot of the same things we say, so you gotta notice the differences and be able to present it well. So we sit down. The moment we sit down, we begin to look for our guide. We're like, where's the guy who brought us here? Well, our guide, we notice, is back at the door with one foot out the door and the other foot in, ready to make a run for it if it goes bad. Which builds a lot of confidence in you at that moment. We begin to pray in the spirit and say, David, don't say anything bad right now. Are you guys awake? All right. So he begins to preach and uh, about 20 minutes or so he begins to preach, which is very short when you got a translator. It's about 10 minutes really because it's cut in half. And then he asked, who here would like to ask Jesus to be Lord of their life, to forgive them of their sins? Again, not to believe in Jesus, because they already believe in Jesus, so you gotta clarify it. 
and he asks, if you, if you would like to do this, to raise your hand. And there's a couple hundred Muslims in this room. It appeared as if the entire room, over a hundred people, raised their hands and began to pray to ask Jesus be Lord of their life in a mosque. It was amazing. Later on, we begin to get some testimonies of different people. They, they said that when we prayed for healing, somebody who couldn't sit down, all of a sudden God healed their back, their legs, they could sit down, they couldn't breathe well. God healed their, their ability to breathe. And God really moved upon that mosque and a few hundred Muslims. As we left, when we get back in the van, our guide at this point, he's freaking out. Like, he's really, really excited. He's like, you guys don't understand. These people are funded by Iran. There are people in that room that are on watch lists. And if you guys had said something the wrong way, they would have probably just shot you. So we're like, we're kind of joking around. We're like, well, on a scale of from one to 10, how dangerous was that? And he's like, that was a 12. Thank you for not telling us before we went. Thank you for waiting till afterwards. But he's like, you don't understand. Never before has the gospel been preached in a mosque. It's never been done. It's never been done. And we went in there, we preached the gospel and saw people encounter God, get saved, and get healed. It was amazing. So, so the next day, the next day, the guide comes to our house or to our hotel. And he's frantic again. He was pretty much frantic the whole time. And uh, he's like, so I just, got, I just got a phone call from one of the sheiks that was there. And he was very angry. He was angry because you preached the gospel and he wasn't aware that you were going to do that. And it was almost like the wisdom of heaven came upon the guide at that moment. And he remembered that when we sat down, when we first got there, they, they, as they welcomed us, they said, hey, all the religions are represented here. And uh, we welcome all, of, all the different religions, including Christianity. But he said the Americans knew that you were lying at that moment. They knew that Christians weren't represented in that room. And they were dishonored because you lied to them. And because they were dishonored, they were compelled. They had to preach the gospel in that room. They had to preach the gospel. Well, he tells them this and all the other sheiks and those other sheiks hear about it. And so they call the guide to apologize. We're so sorry. We dishonored the Americans. We're, we, we apologize. How can we make it up to you? How can we bring honor back to the Americans? And the guide says the only way you can bring honor back to them is if you let them keep coming back to even bigger mosques to continue preaching the gospel. It's the only way their honor will be restored back to them. It was amazing. And so, so we got a text message yesterday from, from David. And uh, he was letting us know that he just was, was notified and he says, I just scheduled our next meeting in a mosque for June 29th, about an hour and a half drive from Baghdad. A guy from the meeting at the mosque last week asked if we could come and do the same thing there. He expects between four to 500 people on the low end, about twice as much as last time. Pray for us for an outpouring of the Spirit, miracles, revelation, conviction, encounters, and deep repentance and salvations, and that we live. We shared this with a few other local leaders here, and they all say this has never been done before Ever, ever, the gospel being preached in a mosque, and we really believe that it's the beginning of God beginning to build some momentum for what's going to happen in November, that when we do these crusades in November, we're believing, so there's 3,000 Christians saved right now in the country. We want to double that number in a week, and we want to see God come and move, and we want to do another one in the spring of about 15 to 20,000 Muslims to come and uh, if you want to sow into that, if you want to be praying for that, you can give or you can be interceding that God really begins to shift a country. We believe it can happen. And um, 
when we were gathered around with the pastors uh, in a room, we were kind of going around and, and giving our different vision and thoughts, and one of the pastors kind of stopped the meeting and said, hey, I just want to make sure that everybody acknowledges the fact of what might happen, the risks that we're taking by doing this event. That is very, very possible that everybody in this room will be thrown into prison or will be killed or will be beaten because of this event in November. And before we take one more step forward, we've got to make sure that everybody is good with that. And who was almost with no hesitation, everybody's like, I'm good. I'll give my life for this. Chris and I are in that room like, who are you people? Like, we, we say things like this. We say things, we'll give our life for this. But when presented with the opportunity to do that, all of a sudden you're like, hold on. Like, what are you asking me to do? And one of the pastors there, he's the pastor of the biggest church in Baghdad, which is, I think, 220 people. And uh, he was telling us, he said, when Saddam was in power, I was arrested and I was thrown into prison and I was given a death sentence. And about two months before I was to be executed, America came in and they invaded the country and liberated the prisons. He's like, you don't understand. I'll die for this. I've been beaten for this. I've lost friends over this. I've been persecuted for this. I will die for what we're doing here. And being in an environment like that, you really begin to question what you believe. And I've preached these messages many times again, but I'm still, I'm having to revisit these words that I've even said out of my mouth to say, man, do I really believe that I would give my life for this? What's the cost I'm willing to pay for the gospel? And too often what has transpired is in Western culture, we've created a definition of the word belief to mean some mental acknowledgement of who Jesus is. We've said, if you believe in Jesus, it means that, that you, you accept that Jesus is real. But the problem is, is that millions of people have prayed a prayer to say, I believe that Jesus is real. And then they go right back to living a life of disobedience and never actually change the way that they live. The Bible says that, oh, you believe in Jesus? Kudos to you. Even the demons believe that he is real. Like, so proud of you that you believe it's God, that you believe God is real. Even the demons believe that, and guess where they're going? They're going to hell. But see, the Bible defines belief much differently. It's much different than just a mental acknowledgement that God is real. It's to actually change the direction you're going, to change course, and to go a completely different direction. It's for your life to live in obedience to Christ. And oftentimes as Christians, we confuse the two. We believe that you can just have this mental acknowledgement of who Jesus is, and that is sufficient. In Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, it says this, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, we really like the scriptures that say it's to all who believe. But this is saying to all who obey him. To all who obey him, to believe is to obey. To believe is to obey. We met an individual there. He was a former Muslim. 13 years ago, he got saved. Jesus met him in his dream. He got saved, and he immediately started following Jesus. The problem with that is, is that the rest of his family did not like that. His wife left him, took his kids, and then his brother-in-law sent a group of people to go kill him. They went, they beat him nearly to death, left him for dead, but they didn't kill him. And so they found out he was still alive. They sent more people, this time with knives, and they began to stab him. And they left him again for dead in a cemetery. And he said his intestines were literally outside of his body, lying there on the ground. 
couldn't move. And he said, Jesus walked up to him, gave him something to drink, and said, get up and go to the hospital. So this man gets up, puts his intestines back in his body. Imagine the cost. What's the cost you're willing to pay? Put his intestines back into his body, made it to the hospital, goes into the hospital, and the doctors say, we don't know how you're alive. There's no signs of life. There's, there's, there's no, what am I trying to say? Pulse. There's no heartbeat. There doesn't, there's no way you're alive right now. He's like, Jesus is in me. He's giving me life. Just sew me back up so I can be on my way. But this guy didn't have a pastor. He didn't have a church for four years. For four years, it was just him and Jesus. It was a belief in something that was much more than just an acknowledgement of something's existence. It was saying, I've met him and it's enough. We asked him, we said, what did Jesus tell you? He said, I'll never tell you. I'll never tell anybody what Jesus told me because it's so personal to him. Right, we get an encounter with God immediately like, oh, you gotta know what Jesus is saying, what he told me to do because it's, we've gotta prove to something, prove to someone that we've, we've met him, we know him. But when you really meet him, you don't wanna tell anybody what you hear because it's so personal. And this man believed something, not just from an idea, but he walked in obedience to it. And we've gotta ask ourselves to what cost, to what end are we willing to go? What do we really believe? In James, many of us know this verse, James chapter two, it says, faith by itself, it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. James was stating that the evidence that a person believes is a life of obedience. What's the evidence of your faith? Prove it to me. Because if it's simply that you believe that God is real, I'm telling you it might actually not be enough. Because he's saying faith without works is dead. Now we know that salvation is free. You do nothing to earn salvation. It's simply by faith in Jesus. You can't prove yourself enough. He gave it to you freely. But he's saying how will you know that you actually believe? How will you know that you actually have faith? It's if you have works that follow. It's if you have a life that actually looks differently than it did before. Too often we have people that we say, I love Jesus. I, I believe that God is real, but their life looks nothing like it. This is what that scripture is saying. If the works aren't there, the faith probably is non-existent. And many people in this room can probably relate to that statement. You believe that Jesus is real. You believe that he's God. So what? So do the demons. And guess where they're going? What do you really believe? Because if you truly believed in Jesus, your life would look different. If you truly believed in him, you'd have a wake of works behind you, a wake of obedience behind you to the Lord that says my life is solely his. Prove it. What's the evidence of your faith? Oh, is it that you come to church on a Sunday morning? Is that you raise your hands and you check the attendance sheet and you give 10%? Is that you're a nice person? I know a lot of nice people that don't know Jesus. I met a lot of nice Muslims, a lot of them gave me food, gave me water, asked me questions, took care of me, but they don't know Jesus? What's the proof? What's the evidence that you know God? Because if it's simply a belief in the existence of him, that's not enough. And we fool ourselves to thinking, oh, if I just keep consistent, keep coming to church, keep doing what I'm supposed to do. You don't wanna know what it says in that scripture in the Bible when it says you cast out demons in my name, you prophesy in my name, but I never knew you, depart from me. 
It's not that you never knew him. It's not that you never knew God. You can know a lot about God, but he said, I never knew you. Depart from me. What's the evidence of your faith? In Romans chapter one, it says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they begin to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. This is how many Christians are. They know God. They know that Jesus is real, but they don't actually know him. And so they come up with weird theologies and perspectives and I can live however I want and God's just gonna forgive me. I don't have to live righteously. I can make those decisions. I can put those things in my body. I can have sex with that person. I can talk this way. I can live a lifestyle like this. And it's fine because I know Jesus and I come to church and I repent and I say all the nice things, but my life looks nothing like him because you never knew him. And you can be sitting in these seats for year after year after year, raising your hands year after year after year, and never truly believe him. Prove your faith. Prove it. What's the evidence? Oftentimes we create a culture that says, don't, don't, don't be that direct. Just try to get them in the building. Just try to build, build a church. Get people to actually show up and sit in the seats. At the Promise Church, it's either black or it's white. Love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and prove it by your works. Your works didn't get you to heaven, but it's the evidence and the proof, the fact that you know Jesus. Prove it. Prove it by your words. Prove it by the way you handle your money. Prove it by how you work at your job. Prove it by how you're in your marriage. Prove it by how you raise your children. Prove it by how you interact with people out and about. Prove it. You know the Lord? Show me. Being here at church isn't proof. A lot of unsaved people going to hell that go to church regularly. Prove it. Got to ask yourself, what's my evidence? What's my evidence? It's not an attendance sheet. That's not evidence. Prove it. Turn in your Bibles to, to Haggai, chapter one. In this book of the Bible, it's a story of a prophet who's sent by God to talk to the Israelites. And at this time, the Israelites had been enslaved in Babylon for 70 years. For 70 years, they've been enslaved, and God calls them to, to go back to the promised land to go rebuild the temple and the walls. So these, these Jews go back to the promised land, full of excitement, full of energy, ready to begin to build the walls to rebuild the temple. They get there, and it says that after 16 years, the temple had still not been rebuilt, and the walls had not been touched. So what happens is they leave Babylon, they go with excitement, with focus, to so do what God had them to do, but after a little while, they begin to lose focus. They begin to get distracted doing other things, and the Lord sends the prophet Haggai to come to them and to tell them this, in, in verse four of chapter one, it says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Is it time for you yourself to build and dwell your paneled houses while this temple lies in ruins? See, this story illustrates very clearly what many of us Christians go through on a regular basis. If I had $20 for every time a Christian came in, encountered the Lord, said I'm gonna change my life and give my life to the Lord, I'm gonna read my Bible every day, I'm gonna worship God, I'm gonna do all these great things, and then a week later or a month later, the life looks exactly the same as it was before, I'd be a millionaire right now. 
It happens all the time. Many of you in this room can probably relate to that. We encounter God. My life's going to change. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to fast and pray. And my life's going to look different. And then all of a sudden we get tired, we get distracted, we lose focus, and our life looks exactly like it did before. Nothing actually changed. I mean, we see, like picture a marathon. Picture a marathon and picture somebody who's never ran a marathon before. They wake up that morning and they say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go run, run 26.2 miles. It sounds stupid, I know. But for a moment, just imagine that somebody woke up and said that. I don't know why anybody would ever say that. But imagine for a moment, somebody said that. They show up at the marathon, they get to the starting line. They look around at everybody and they're like, I'm going to kick your butt. You want to know why? Because I'm excited. This is what Christians do. I'm going to last. Do you want to know why? I'm excited. Great. Proud of you, man. They look at the winner from last year and they're like, I'm going to smoke you. You want to know why? Because I'm excited. I didn't train. And the guys will ask him, you got people like at the different mile markers to like give you, you know, like something to drink? I don't need it. I'm good. I'm going to run the whole 26 miles easy on my own. Wow. So the, the gun goes off and they start off on the race. That guy jumps out to the lead, right? He's excited. He's got motivation. He's focused. Jumps out to lead. Everybody's behind him. He looks back and he's like, that's right. I know what I'm doing. Mile number one comes, still in the lead. Mile number two comes. Now he's getting a little tired. People are getting a little closer. By mile number three, people start passing him. By mile number four, quits. Quits. It would have been better if he didn't even try. That's the story of many in this room. Oh, man, we start the journey. We're full of excitement. Man, God's moving on my life. I'm reading my Bible. All I want is him. And then a couple weeks, couple days, I'm so happy you read your Bible for three days. It was awesome, but we quit. We lose focus. We get distracted. We start a summer. We start January 1. Oh, full of excitement. Oh, this, this time is going to be different. It looks exactly like every other time. We quit. We lose focus. And here's the Israelites and Haggai comes to him and says, you are more focused on building your paneled houses than building the Lord's temple. See, many of us, we get distracted with life, like really good things, like God wants me to have a good house. Like these Israelites, I'm assuming when they started building the, the temple again, they're probably going back and sleeping under the stars and like, well, God wouldn't want me to sleep under the stars. He'd want me to have a house. So I'm just going to kind of press pause for a moment on the temple and come over here and build my house a little bit more. And once I get that structure kind of furnished and my family settled, then I'll go back and start building the temple again. But the problem is once they start building the house, then they realize now they need money to do it. So now he's got to go get a job. And then after he gets the job, he realizes, well, now I want to build the business because if I can build the business really good, then I'll have enough money. I can sow into that temple and I can do a lot of great things. And all of a sudden they get distracted by a bunch of really good things and they never do the thing that they were called to do. And we see this all the time, like the business you're trying to develop, the kids you're trying to help in sports, the marriage you really focus on, the vacations you want to do, the house you want to buy, the cars you want to do this, the education you want to have, all great things, but oftentimes can distract you from the most important thing, which is are you building the house of God? Or have you become distracted by trying to build your own house? And oftentimes we create the pursuit of success. I'm trying to create a successful life. I'm trying to create a successful relationship, a successful marriage. All these great things, but they can deter you from what you're actually called to do. My wife and I, we had this happen very practically to us at the beginning of this year. God spoke to us and he said, you want to build a house. This year in 2019, we wanted to buy or build our dream home this year. 
And he said, before you do that, I want you to take some of that money and I want you to put it into this fund to see the gospel spread around the world. He said, if you'll build my house, I'll build your house. And it sounds like, man, that's so easy. No big deal. At the moment, that was a very difficult decision. And when we made that decision, we saw something transpire in our lives almost immediately. Because if you read a little bit further on in Haggai, it talks about how the, 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 the rains from heaven were withheld from the harvest because they chose to focus on their own house rather than his. And when we started focusing on his house, we saw an expedited process in our finances. A business we were gonna buy in five years, we bought in, we're gonna be buying in five months. We saw the first quarter of this year in our business grow more in one quarter than it did all of last year. Second quarter, grow more in the second quarter than all of last year. Simply because we chose to put our focus on building his house more than ours. And it's not just about money, it's about time. It's about, will I actually give my time to building the house of the Lord? What's most important to me? Is it building a life of success? Is it creating, a, creating a, a fun place for my children to grow up in? Is it creating a, a marriage where we get to travel and we get to experience all these things? Is it getting that great education? All great things, all things that I love, all things that we all aspire to have. But if it replaces the most important thing in your life, which is obedience to the Lord, which is living a lifestyle that represents him, you've missed the whole thing. You've missed the whole thing. And if you're sitting there today saying, well, haven't I done enough? Haven't I given everything to him? And if he asks for all of that, how am I gonna be able to balance my life? How am I gonna be able to balance my family? He knows that I need a good place to live. He knows that I, I, I wanna take care of my family. In scripture, it says nothing about balance. The word's not even mentioned in scripture. You want to know what's mentioned in scripture? Seek first. Seek first. Too often we get distracted by building our own homes and we forget to build his. And let's get really practical for a moment. We got Hope in the Park coming up in 12 days. If you don't know what Hope in the Park is, it's an event that we have at Horseshoe Lake Park. We put up a big tent. Josh, if you can come up. We put up a big tent and we ask for the whole city to come. The whole city to come. We're going to do blow up. Uh, bounce houses, we're gonna do a barbecue, we're gonna give lots of huge prizes. And it's a time where many, many people are gonna encounter the Lord, get saved. Some of you are here today because of doing, doing it last year. And we're asking for volunteers. And it's like pulling teeth to get people to help. In 10 days, a week from Thursday, we're gonna go out to the whole city, knock on almost every door in the city and invite them to come. You wanna know how many people we got signed up for that? Five. Five people in a church of 750, that's less than 1%. Less than 1% saying, I'll do that. And see, we all say things like, I want to go to a church that believes in evangelism. Really? Do you? Then prove it. Oh, I want to go to a church that cares for the poor. Really, when was the last time you did? I would never go to a church that didn't believe in telling people about Jesus. Oh, sounds great. When was the last time you did? We say all the right things. I want to be a part of a church that believes in this. Prove it. Show me by your actions. Because it's really easy to say you got faith in Jesus. The moment it comes to prove it, where's the evidence? You don't got much to show. Attendance sheets? That's not proof. What's the proof? It should be the easiest thing in the world to get people to sign up to go knock on someone's door to say, do you know Jesus? Why else are you alive except to tell them about who he is? That's it. 
There's no balance. It's him. He's number one. And too often we get distracted by building our paneled houses. God knows we're busy. We got stuff going on. Man, you don't understand. I got to do this. God wants me to be successful there. He wants me to really pour into that. I'm sure he does. But you better make sure that's not taking the place of building his house. See, me and my wife, we're building his house. Our life looks really different. We don't got time to ourselves. We don't got all these extra evenings available. We're busy building his house. Your life's going to look different. You're going to have to cancel plans. You're going to have to sow money in other places that you wouldn't normally sow it into. You might have to not build your house for a season. You might have to start building his. But what's the cost you're willing to pay? How much are you willing to actually do it? David told me on our way, to, on our way back, actually, from... Um, from one of the places at a camp that we were at, he said, guys, just to warn you, if somebody puts a gun to your head on this trip, you better not deny him. Because I actually believe what the scriptures say. That if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before my father. He said, I don't know whether God would do it or not, but that's what it says in the scripture, and I believe it. So no matter how well you've lived before this moment, if you deny him with a gun to your head, be careful. It's almost like I haven't really believed what I've been reading. Faith without works is dead. So you sit there and you say you believe in Jesus, proud of you. The demons do too. They might be sitting right next to you. But prove it by your works. What's the evidence? It doesn't have to look like giving money here or, or sowing to that. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's the way you treat your family. Maybe it's the way you talk. Prove it. What's the evidence? We live in a culture where we don't face persecution like death. We face persecution like distraction. That's how the enemy gets you. Gets you, your focus on something else. Gets you feeling like you're fine, living the way you want. You can keep going through the motions that you're going through. You want to know what happens to those lukewarms? They get spit out. And we like to say, well, Aaron, you're getting really intense. You know, you're, you're talking about living a life of righteousness. Yeah, you want to know where the righteous go? They go safe in him. It says narrow is the gate. Narrow is the gate. We're really, really good at trying to widen that gate as much as we can. And oftentimes we got a lot of people who say they love Jesus, but they got a life that looks nothing like it. You say you give, perfect. You say you love Jesus, prove it. Prove it. What's the evidence? What's the evidence? Because often we get distracted by our own houses. What I want to do this morning is if you're here this morning and you're, you're sitting there saying, I don't know if there's a lot of proof to whether I actually believe in Jesus. There isn't a lot of evidence. If somebody asked me right now, maybe the only evidence I'd have is that I go to church on a Sunday morning. Let me say this. If you don't read your Bible regularly, if you don't actually spend time with Jesus, the only time you spend time with him is on a Sunday morning, there might not be a lot of evidence. What's your evidence? Prove it. And if you're here today and you're saying, man, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence in my life. I know that God's real, but man, if you asked me to prove it, I wouldn't have a whole lot to tell you. I'm sitting here today and I'm saying, yeah, you know, I've, maybe I've even said a prayer. Maybe I've even been to church for a few years. I've, I've said a lot of great things, but if you ask me for evidence, I really don't have much. Maybe you've been serving. You've been a part of this church for years. You, you, you make food for people. You, you serve on the Esther team. You work in the children's ministry. You do a lot of great things, you, but, but you're Martha. Doing a lot of stuff never has to do, and God doesn't actually know you. There's no evidence to the faith in your life except works and doing and things that have nothing to do with actually a life of obedience to God. So if you're here today and you're saying, man, there's not a lot of proof in my life. There's not a lot of evidence to my faith. I just want to ask you to stand.
right now. The guy we were with was talking about, he said, you want to know the biggest proof of your faith? He said, stick a gun to your head and have somebody ask you if you would deny him. And if you hesitate, there's not a lot of proof. <laughs> Oftentimes we create, we create this theology of what it looks like to be a Christian because it's what we've seen or we've grown up in church or we've been a believer for years and we, we think we know what it looks like to be a Christian and because we don't really know God, we say all the right things and we go through a really good cycle of saying all the right things. All the while, we're dead on the inside, but we've masked it, we really don't even know it. Prove it. What's your evidence? And if your evidence is simply coming to church, I'm here to tell you today, it's probably not enough. So this is what we do. If you're standing, if you just put your hands out, and I just want you to begin to ask for forgiveness from the Lord. I've spent a lot of time lately just asking for forgiveness. Father, I repent. I didn't know. I'm so sorry. My prayer lately has been, God, here I am. I'm broken. I'm empty. I feel like I got nothing to give you, but God, all you want is me. So if that's enough, I'll give you me. Father, forgive me for becoming distracted. Forgive me for making my paneled houses more important than your house. If you're still sitting and you're saying, man, I've been focused on building my own house, my own success story more than I was on building his, you need to stand. I'm, I'm your pastor and I was more focused on building my house more than his. So, Father, today we ask that each person is standing. We commit to living a life that's focused on you. Every distraction that tries to come in to get us wayward, every distraction tries to come in, every lie that we believe that says, I'm doing enough, I'm fine just the way I am, I can live how I want, I don't need to change, we break those lies in the name of Jesus. God, and we ask that we would be a people that stop getting distracted on building our own house and we start focusing on building yours. God, that we would be people that begin to live righteously, we begin to live in obedience. We would stop thinking that it's simply about a coming to some place, coming to a building, simply about an attendance sheet or giving a dollar here or a dollar there. But God, we want to live a life that's in obedience to you, that our life would actually look like yours. God, that we wouldn't be a, a person that, that finds satisfaction in anything else, but simply in you. God, here I am. I, I open my heart to you. Come and investigate me, Father. Come and look at the different pieces in my life that I've chosen to make more important than you. The fears or the concerns or the worries. What happens if this? What happens if that? God, we choose to put that all aside. We lay our own self on the altar to say, God, here I am. I've got nothing else, but all I've got is me. Hopefully that's enough. And I believe he's coming to you today to say that's all I ever wanted. It's not about gifting. It's not about ability. It's simply all I want is you. I just want to know you. And if you've been in church for a long time, you can become a professional at saying all the right things, praying the right prayers, looking good, worshiping good, responding well, knowing when to stand, when to sit, when to go forward, when to cry, when not cry. I'm a professional at it. 
I know how to do church real well, and I can fake it, and it can, it can turn into a facade that's never real. And many of you in this room face that battle on a weekly basis. You come in, you play the game. Church isn't a game. Relationship with the Lord isn't a game. And when I stand before him, I want him to say, I know you. What's the evidence? There's people in this room right now that you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've walked away from him. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, man, there's really no evidence of any kind. If you're in this room right now and you're saying, I need to give my life back to Jesus, or I need to give it to Jesus for the first time, I want you to raise your hand. If you're not already standing, stand and raise your hand. If there's anybody here right now. Anybody else? Where's your evidence? If you don't have any right now, don't wait. Luke, if you would go back and just pray with her. If you all would just look at me real quick. For those of you standing right now, you have a decision. Because you're that guy at the starting block of the marathon. And you're looking at everybody being like, I'm going to make it. I got it. Like, you don't got to worry about me. And everybody's looking at you like, seen that happen before. Know the end of that story. What's going to be different about it this time? How are you going to get that proof? Remember, you're not trying to prove God. You're not trying to prove yourself to the Lord. He's already adopted you in his family. You're a son, you're a daughter, right? But what's the evidence of your faith? Because if you truly believe in God, if you truly believe in the Lord, your life will look differently. So Jeffrey, if you could bring that up. And this morning, I'm not gonna leverage you, I'm gonna pastor you. I'm gonna pastor you and I'm gonna tell you that we've got a sign-up sheet for Hope in the Park. And uh, on Thursday, a week from Thursday, we've got five people right now, well, maybe more after first service, signed up to go door to door to preach the gospel and to invite people to come. Actually, you're not even preaching the gospel. This is how easy it is. You knock on the door, you say, I'd like to invite you to an event where we give you a bunch of food and you have the chance to win prizes. Does that sound fun to you? They're gonna say, absolutely. It's really easy. We should be a church that every opportunity we have to love people, we run to the front to sign up. Every time. We shouldn't have to stand up here and say, why aren't there anybody wanting to do this? This is, this is the part of the evidence. This isn't manipulation. This is because when you have a life that says, I truly believe in Jesus, one of the signs of that evidence is to serve, is to give, is to love. It's really hard to do that from the confines of your home when you're by yourself and you expect other people to do it. Stop looking at the person to the left or to your right to say they'll do it and start looking at yourself. It's on you. So Luke's gonna come up and close here in just a moment, but when he's done, I want every person here who says, man, I actually need to step my game. I actually need some evidence in my life. This is a great starting spot. This is a great place to begin to sign up to say, I wanna give. I wanna love on people. We got VBS. It's hard to get volunteers for VBS. 
to love on children. Like that's like the easiest thing to do. We need to be people who don't just attend a place, but we need to be people who say, I'm not going to be an observer any longer. I'm going to participate. We're really good at observing. All of us are professional church observers. Well done. You're a professional at something. Proud of you. Now become a professional participant. Participate in the journey because you'll be sitting there on the sidelines for a long time walking in disobedience to the Lord. Every person here is called by God to walk in obedience, to love others, to participate in things like this where we can give Jesus away to others. Amen.